Thanks, guys. Good job this morning. Appreciate you guys. It's always a challenge to step into this space and not say something to entertain Mark. Watch me not, Mark. <laughs> well, morning one and all, uh, as always, if you consider yourself a part of this little community, let us know who you are, let us know how you are, let us know what you need. We're learning to take care of our in-towners and our out-of-towners in 2021. Uh, we want to get good at loving and listening to all comers to this place. So let me give you one second briefly to gather your family around what I think is an important reminder that I've been thinking about and working on all week. Once again, I get to step into this little space and say, wow, what a week. You can't make this stuff up, folks. Truly, what a difficult and heartbreaking week, at least here in America. A few words about it before we jump into our message today. I've been thinking specifically about the subject of surprise. Surprise sometimes, not always, but sometimes can function as a cover for false innocence. And false innocence is complicity, if you look at it clearly. Let me see if I can explain. When George Floyd was murdered by police, the majority white community's response of shock and surprise was a terrible additional injury to the communities of color who have been telling us this truth since the very beginning. We just weren't listening. Black and brown bodies have always been perceived as hostile to white America. Who was actually surprised by that, that display of brutality? When a virus, likewise, mutates and travels around the globe, exposing the weakness of our global healthcare system, can we really claim the innocence of surprise? Epidemiologists have been predicting this for years. We defunded their attempts to stay ahead and keep us prepared. Likewise, when white nationalists, those are their words, not mine, when white nationalists are encouraged and provoked by their leaders to respond violently to the loss of center they've always held culturally, when they act lawless and reckless and defile national symbols, we don't get to act surprised. To do so is to inflict additional injury on communities who have been targeted by these fearful, small-minded people for years. I am angry, I'm guessing you are too, and I am heartbroken. But I'm not surprised. This is what happens when morally bankrupt, racist, anti-immigrant, self-preserving leadership feeds those folks fear and falsehood, telling them that their power is being taken away and what they might do to cope with that loss. This was planned, as you know, publicly planned. We do not get to be surprised. The last four years are not an anomaly or an aberration to American history. Folks, this is actually how violent and nationalist we still are. As a church, we don't have to be the first to name or identify evil. I hope we are never the last, but I don't feel like it's on us to race to grab the mic first. We don't have to grandstand or browbeat or get all soapboxy on social media with outrage and surprise. Those can all be, if we are not careful, sinister and culturally celebrated ways of recentering on our whiteness, even if it's just on our tears and on our surprise. Times like these call for a greater response, I would say, ownership, truly listening to one another, 
a mutual commitment to build something better, something more equitable, something more honest. Surprise can be a cover for false innocence, and false innocence is a form of complicity. We can't be surprised when we've been told by prophetic voices around us for generations that we've stacked the deck in our favor. It's time to get to work building something new. And for the record, this won't just be Joe's work to do alone. It'll be ours to do as well at our kitchen tables, at the water cooler, on our social media feed. Whatever hate and contempt rises in your hearts or in our hearts towards our neighbor, no matter what that provocation may be, will always be our work to uproot and to correct. This church is committed to naming this hard truth and to working towards a solution together. Now, this one last corrective to what we saw on Wednesday. It was particularly the unholy union between Christian symbols and white nationalism. In fact, I've been encouraged, and I agree, to name this what this actually is, what we saw was Christian white nationalism. You saw the symbols. We must repent. We must rebuild. There has to be a better way. The embarrassment we felt, I get it. I understand it. You may have seen that for the first time unveiled. It is not new. It is as old as this country. And so it's time to rebuild and go in new directions. I hope that that doesn't offend you. If it does, dig in and do some work. These are tough times, and I don't think the Worst of it is behind us yet. So, how to transition from that into an epiphany message. Let's begin by reading our text today, and it comes to us from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 2, and it will be on your screen. Familiar text, it turns up every year in the lectionary, perhaps because it's important enough not to miss no matter what year we are in. Let me just read it. The subparagraph says, The Visit of the Wise Men. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all of Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea. For it has been written about by the prophet. And these are the words from the prophet Micah. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is shepherd to my people Israel. End quote. Then Herod secretly called for the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I may go also and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen at its rising until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. Verse 11. On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then opening their treasure chests, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. Familiar story. You've heard it countless times. If ever there was a Sunday that you should pay close attention to what the vicar says, it is today. Epiphany, this odd little season of gift giving and gift receiving squeezed in between Advent and Lent, is when we consider the universal scope of the revelation of God in Christ. These are staggering, decentering claims preserved for us in our own Christmas story. You should probably hang on 
tight today because we're going to push it a little hard. Today is the day that we allow Zoroastrian priests or shaman or magicians or stargazers, whatever you prefer, to remind us of the all-encompassing, all-consuming, all-inclusive message of Jesus' birth. Today is when we allow them to tell us, again, about the truth written in the stars as well as the ancient writings. These sages will, if we can hear them, speak compellingly to us of the accumulated understanding of who God is and what God's birth means to all people everywhere across religious traditions. Zoroastrian priests or magi or three wise men or we three kings of Orient are, as most Western Christians refer to them, whatever name you prefer, they play a key role in the story of humanity. One of the constant challenges of making meaning, as you know, of a Christmas story where we celebrate the incarnation of God in Christ is the familiarity of the players involved, which is why I like to simply refer to these travelers as Zoroastrian priests, because that's what the scholars agree that they were. Identifying them this way slightly increases the chance that you'll listen with fresh ears to the meaning of their cameo appearance in an old familiar story a story, honestly, that we've learned to homogenize and filter in ways that support and sustain our Judeo-Christian center. You see, we cherish our simplistic notions that Jesus was our gift. Hear me now. We protect this mythology. In fact, we need to believe that we are the only ones who actually understand the gift of God and the baby born to Mary, but this was always a universal message. These magi guys or gals, actually in the original language, there's no gender specificity here, but these magi people were priests of another cosmovision, complete with its own story of origin, tales of wisdom and history of their own, its own pantheon of divine beings. Zero evidence exists that they ever converted to, Jew, to Jewish faith, and they couldn't possibly have become Christians in case you thought they had, since no such distinction existed yet. No, these folks simply read the precise movement of the stars, then add what they could find in the ancient writings of the prophets of Israel, members of a rival nation, which might tell you something you need to know about the sincerity of their pursuit of knowledge and experience. To the stars and to the prophecies of Isaiah, they add what they can, what they can find in their own robust tradition of followers of the writings of Zoroaster. They learn what they can by asking people in the know, and this is how they end up in the house of Herod in Jerusalem, a most unhelpful advisor, as it turns out, inquiring about the birth of a king, a coming king, a king that Herod somehow failed to see or prepare for, a threat, a rival, a mess, a total surprise. You know, the text doesn't actually imply that the stars led them directly to the manger. I hope you know that. That seems unlikely, if not impossible, altogether. It says that the star led them to the city of David, which is Jerusalem. They didn't go directly to Bethlehem or the manger, and because these Magi folks were people of influence who could get themselves an audience with Herod the king at the time of that, in that history, they made the necessary inquiries at the court, in the court of Herod. Surely something as important as the birth of a new king would have made the royal register. Surely. Herod listens, then quietly panics, as crappy leaders often do then calls his own wise men to get busy. And since Herod's wise old Jewish scribes and teachers of the law were actually in charge of readiness and preparations for the birth of the Messiah, he act, they actually knew the prophetic writings where they could find the missing details to add to the story that the, that the Magi were weaving together. Interestingly enough, 
Even after Herod's advisors locate and convey the specific details around the birth of this promised deliverer to the Magi, they were still not intrigued enough to do their own seeking these leaders in Jerusalem. Some dogs just won't hunt. They have no curiosity. But these Persian priests from the east sure did. Now, maybe these weirdos just turned up in, a, in Jerusalem on a whim, a fluke. Maybe Matthew is over-interpreting the meaning of a desert ramble among old eccentric friends. But I don't think so, and neither does history. They paid close attention to the dusty old texts, enough to know exactly what sort of gifts they might bring this toddler, this son of Mary, even though Isaiah 60, plus the clues that they find in Micah, couldn't possibly have been referring directly to Jesus. These writings, as you are well aware, came centuries before Mary gives birth. Isaiah and Micah were doubtless talking about King Josiah, the great young king of the southern kingdom of Judah. All the same, the Magi lift from this ancient lore a hint, a clue. And so they bring with them those very gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And in so doing, they connect Jesus to that very old messianic expectation. Did you catch that? The Torah wasn't even their sacred text. It didn't contain their history, yet they were scholars of it. Zoroastrianism was the dominant faith system of Iran and surrounding cultures for over a thousand years. They would have been experts in the Avesta, which included Zoroaster's writings called the Gathas. Their sacred text, which predates anything related to Judaism or Christianity, taught about good and evil, about heaven and hell, about the free will of humanity, about the equality of the genders, and about a coming Messiah. These very old Iranian-Persian teachings would go on to impact the formation of Judaism and Christianity, Islam and Baha'i, and even Buddhism in time. What a rebuke. What a slap in the face. What an insult to the nationalistic pride of a suffering people Israel under the thuggish boot of Rome. A Persian corrective? An Iranian compliment? A lesson in the constellations? You got it. This is exactly what Epiphany gives us. There should never have been a way to make something nationalistic, something exclusionary or violent, something angry or hateful, something closed to the outside, something nasty and self-preserving out of the birth of Jesus. Oh, but we've managed. Never underestimate the imagination of people of faith. (laughs) I know you saw what I saw in the news this week. A Christian flag carried by vandals. Banners that read Jesus 2020. I even saw a man dressed in white with a red cross suggesting he was channeling his inner crusader energy. How shameful. How small. What a total misappropriation of the message of Jesus. In my experience, people stop just short of saying this in plain English. These Persian seekers deliver a powerful critique to the arrogant, self-referential, closed-loop thing that we have made of divine revelation. Love is nothing if not universal. We should know this. That isn't an innovation that comes with Jesus that has always been true, if one could only see it. You may not worry about your theology very much, but I worry about mine. I intentionally read books that challenge and stretch me to accommodate greater understanding and greater love and greater grace. And if I'm honest, I sometimes worry about losing my moorings altogether to Orthodox Christian faith. 
especially after weeks like the one we have just come through. You know how important it is to deconstruct your faith. I've been doing it for years intensely, intentionally, systematically. Many of you are in this audience because we share that same flight pattern. You are here because I name what you've been thinking and feeling and processing, encouraging you to throw out the structure and keep the gospel that sets free. And while this probably makes you feel at home, this thing we do here, it sometimes makes me worry about where we will end up with me at the wheel. If we fully accept what the story of Epiphany implies, we're headed in an interesting direction. I have a battle-tested appetite for the deepest questions accompanied by a chemical disdain and the suspicion of answers and certainties that the adults stored on the shelves just out of my reach when I was a younger man. I was taught not to ask questions, but it didn't work. I'm not saying this to alarm you. The same is most likely true for you. All things grow, you see. We know this to be true. And faith, to the degree that it is healthy and alive, also grows. It must it can't not, which is just another way of acknowledging that it dies, it molts, it morphs constantly. Faith is always dying and being reborn. It's how it actually works. It's practically the definition of faith. Anyway, epiphany is when we are encouraged to sit with the gift of God in Christ. It's slow unwrapping the unboxing, which of course can't be rushed, which is why it's a season like Advent and like Lent. Why do we get an entire season to unbox the revelation of God, of a God-infused world born in a baby? The truth of God with us, God in us, God in all of us, given and invested across religious boundaries? Why does that take a season? Because that's about how long it takes to get inside a truth this big. I've spent my entire life in this gospel. You know my story. I grew up in a missionary ministry family. Zero days have transpired in my life in which my first or possibly second thought wasn't in some way about faith and faith communities. It's just the truth. And yet, Epiphany reminds me every year that I've barely begun to unbox the universal truth of God in Christ. And it's not for lack of curiosity because I've always been curious. It's the check valves. It's the speed bumps. It's the regulators. It's the dash light warning systems designed to keep us between the proverbial lines that stop the full unboxing. Built into our version of Western Christianity, it seems to me that there is a suspicion of suspicion itself. Many of you are wily wanderers like me. You've found the emergency brakes that stop the elevator car from free-falling. You've traded fast enough to activate the built-in trading halt on the floor of the stock exchange because the nature of your need-to-know alerted the authorities of a sellout of your faith. Anytime we get too close to the universal scope, the universal impact, the comprehensive claim, this global post-tribal reality of the divine truth found in Christ, we're supposed to sit down and shut up. We're supposed to just stop asking probing questions. Someone's supposed to grab the wheel from us progressives steering the ship back to safe harbor and older paradigms. We've even made a dirty little label out of the word universal, which should be a positive way to describe all truth. To call a theologian or a pastor or a Christian author a universalist is designed to insult and gag and render that voice irrelevant. But we can't get away from the universal truth found in Christ, when epiphany is literally sewn into the fabric of our faith, right here in the middle of our calendar, smack dab between the humanity of God or the divinity of humanity, whichever you prefer, that we celebrate during Christmas and the revelation that death is only a passage, a doorway, not a curse or a final sentence, that we celebrate during Easter, right here in the midst, we have this truth, the unavoidable impact of God made flesh. <laughs> 
We can't get ourselves from the Christmas manger to Easter's empty tomb without unboxing the gift of Jesus, church. You simply cannot jump from December to March, no matter how hard you try. So today, we have priests of a foreign cosmology trekking for months in the Persian outback, following a star, announcing the staggering centrality, the astonishing mind-bending universality, the eternal transcendent logic of love with skin on. Our faith is incomplete without this ongoing epiphany. What Christians took centuries to recognize was sought and found by Persian seekers early on. What we interpret as a gift to us was understood by these wise seekers from the East as a gift to all. Priests of other religious systems recognized the logic of God made flesh of a newborn child carrying the promise of a new creation. But, which has me wondering, what does it mean to be a seeker? What should we make of these wise people from the East coming to poke at our baby offering strange gifts? The text could have simply said that they were travelers or rich merchants or influential diplomats, diplomats from a foreign court, but it specifically mentions wisdom, doesn't it? Which should alert us to something important. We could leave them dressed up with bedsheets and Burger King paper hats with stick-on beards and Birkenstocks, standing to the right of the holy couple by the manger in our Christmas pageants, but we'd miss something important, in my opinion. Besides, they didn't visit Jesus when he was a newborn in the manger. Get your timeline straight. We've compressed that. Again, this is just a story, maybe. We could pass it over, perhaps. That is, if it didn't crack open a deep, deep truth, a needed truth. Jesus was not born to be found by a select few. God taking on flesh was not a gospel for a limited audience. This was a move any true seeker could affirm. But you had to be a true seeker, which ought to feel like an invitation to us. Where would you look, honestly, if no one had the power to tell you to steer clear or stay away or ignore those people because they're dangerous? Where would you actually look if you weren't afraid that it was off limits? Go there. Follow that star. The Magi navigated by three instruments, instruments as, as I can read in the text. First the stars, then the ancient text, and then their guts. We'd be wise to do the same. Does this sound like risky advice to you? I'm willing to take a few risks. Church leaders have always tried to control the intellectual diet of her faithful, thinking that this was the way to keep the pews full and the coffers plump. But I'm not concerned about that. I'd rather encourage you to seek and find and question and poke and consider and unravel and reassemble and reduce and rebuild of all the divine traits that we bear. I think curiosity might just be among the most trustworthy of them all. Seek wholeheartedly this year. So let me be clear. At ANC, we want to be courageous and bold about setting people free. You will never hear us telling you that you have to come and fill yourselves with this, our particular version of content, in order to be well. You won't hear us say it. Go after some Nadia, some Roar, some Barbara, and some Pete of both Rollins and Enns varieties. Don't forget to add some McLaren and then some Thich Nhat Hanh along with some Rob and some, a healthy dash of Delio if you can understand her. And if you can't, just watch more Pixar. Omerchu works, and so does Brene, so does Gopnik and Singer, or Emerson or Plath, or Rumi or Williams, Mark Williams, if you need to know. 
Of course, David Ramirez will also take you there, but so will Rustin and Stevie or Sting and Bono or Bowie or Patsy. Hell, if, you, if Willie can take you there, follow that path too. Whatever you need to find to find harmony and convergence and overlap with the truth of God made flesh, let it teach you. Follow that. What am I saying? I'm saying that seekers find. That's what I'm saying. If you're truly seeking and not just hiding or medicating or avoiding, there is a difference. Of course there is. This final thought. These wise folks kept listening. I wonder if you saw that detail. They stayed tuned. Even after they found what they were looking for, they still listened and heard in a dream that they should travel home by another way. Home by another way. Did you hear that? How many ways are there that can take us home? May we be like these magi. May we never stop listening or gathering information or checking our charts or adjusting our course or listening to our guts and our dreams and our intuition to account for what the Spirit of God is leading us to do next. These three wise travelers from afar teach the local motion how to celebrate and receive what they had already received. Don't expect that to change. Connection, convergence, overlap, and harmony are the point. This is what the Magi saw. It took an outside perspective to see it in its most full unfolding. This is our story. You might be saying to yourself, I don't trust any of those things, connection and convergence and overlap and harmony across different systems of belief. That all sounds dangerously subjective. Of course they do. You were taught that there was only one way home. You've received some of the same spiritual traumas that I did growing up. We will name and unpack that together this year, I promise. For now, just know you can trust yourself. You won't always be right. You'll make mistakes and you'll go down a few dead ends. You'll survive a few false starts and attempts to medicate and hide and avoid. All the same for now, know this truth, church. You'll recognize home when you get there. And you are in good company if you go home by another way.